Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We are going to be flying through one verse. Just one. Verse 16 of John 3. This verse has a lore to it. I was reading Spurgeon's uh, sermon on this, and he only did one sermon on this, and he didn't realize that until 1885. It's like seven years before he died. And he even said that. He's like, I can't believe I've never preached once on this whole verse. I mean, this is a guy who preached four times on Isaiah 9, 6, and, and, and uh, five times on John 3, 18, but never once until seven years before he died on John 3, 16. But then when he did, he quoted like, 35 other verses to kind of make his case. It was a great sermon. But there is a real lore to it. That even if this verse is never really brought up, it really defines all of Christian ministry. There's, there's no verse that's more widely known. I said probably in my notes, but there's, that's just in there for fun. There's no verse that's more widely known than this verse. Be honest. When you're reading through John 3 in your own personal devotions, do you even read verse 16? No, you skip over it like the rest of us do, because we all know it. One time when I was uh, working out at Frontier Camp, I, I wrote up a poll, like a quiz of just basic Bible literacy. Had a lot of different stuff on there. Had some funny ones, like who gave the Sermon on the Mount? Billy Graham, Jesus, Paul, or whoever, stuff like that. But then I had uh, at the beginning and the end. So at the, be- at the beginning, I had list all Ten Commandments. Out of 170-something uh, high school and mostly college students, none of them could write down all 10 who had already been approved to work at the camp. None of them. But then at the end of it, I just had a block of text with a bunch of blanks missing. It was John 3.16. And every single one of them, 100% of them, could fill that in. I found that to be pretty interesting. That everybody knows John 3.16. And then at the popularity in the wider culture in the United States... Do y'all remember that guy in the 70s and the 80s? So when I say y'all, I mean some of y'all. Remember in the 70s and 80s at, at football games, basketball games, baseball games, the guy behind the, the stands with the, with the rainbow wig and the sign that said John 3.16. That guy's name was Roland Stewart. And he just decided he was one of those Jesus people back then. He, his life ends up in a horrible tragedy. Don't look it up unless you want to be depressed. But he, started, he was the first guy to start doing that. To have that sign that said John 3, 16, then everybody did that. And it was just kind of a, a thing. And then Tim Tebow, I forget what year, in 2009, Tim Tebow, remember he wrote on his eye black, John 3, 16? Apparently, during that game, that verse was Googled 94 million times because Tim Tebow had it written on his face during the national championship game. And it just goes on and on. The, the lore of this verse, Forever 21, the clothing store, writes it on their bags. That you, When you leave the store, it's written on their bags. In-N-Out Burger, the bottom of your cup, has John 3.16 written on it. And somehow, you know this verse before you become... Everybody just knows this verse by osmosis. Did anybody sit down and have to work on memorizing John 3.16? Maybe a few of us, but most people who didn't even go to Awana just know it. And what, what version do we all know it in? King James. Because you all say, whosoever... And that's only in the King James. That's our one verse that we're like, no, that's the way Jesus said it was in the King James. But there's a reason why this verse is so popular. So I think it's wise for us to take the time instead of going, oh, it's popular. That means it's lame and we don't need it. If it's popular, let's slow down and see why. 
I think it's popular and so well known because it's packed full of Christian truth of God, man, sin, death, redemption, resurrection, and eternal life. It's chock full of it. And it's so beautifully and simply worded that a child can memorize it. So just like with Nicodemus, as we saw the past couple of weeks, we're in serious danger of missing the point of this verse if we don't slow down because it's so familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt. And in this case, I think familiarity brings numbness. We're numb to the truths of this verse because we've been seeing it on TV and held up in signs behind games and memorized when we were little kids. So as a serious-minded Christians, we should certainly know more than John 3.16, but we can't know less than John 3.16. So we're going to run at this verse from a couple of different angles. We're just going to walk through it, and then we're going to look at some two common misperceptions of it, and then we're going to look at two uh, applications of it or implications from the verse. So let's look at it right there in verse 16. Now, if your Bible, most of its Bibles will have a break right there and starts a new paragraph. Now, if you have red letters, it's probably red on verse 16. But did you know that there is debate as to whether or not Jesus said John 3:16 or John the apostle was writing it as commentary on what Jesus said? So here's a side note. If, you, if you're going to buy a Bible, if you're in the market for a Bible, buy one that has no red letters and buy one that has no paragraph titles. Because when we see those red letters and those paragraph titles, we just kind of tune out and we stop actively reading and we just kind of are assuming things. So let's wrestle with this. Did Jesus say this or did Nicodemus say it? Or I mean, not Nicodemus. Did, did John say it after he was done talking with Nicodemus? I think it's John's commentary on it. I think these letters are supposed to be black, not red. Because it sounds a whole lot like John 1, 1 through 18, the, the intro about Jesus. It sounds a whole lot like that. So let's look at the first part of the verse. It says, for, for God so loved the world, for. What does for indicate to us? It links this verse back to the previous paragraph, but it's indicating a new thought that's connected. It's connected to it, but it's a new thought. It's not changing totally, but it's remaining connected. So John is going to explain what Jesus said in verse 15. He's going to explain what makes it possible that verse 15 is true, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's what verse 15 says. So John's explaining why that can be true, how it can be true. Because verse 15 is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus explicitly states that belief in him results in eternal life. So John's going to explain that and expound on that. John has made it clear already in places like chapter 1, verse 12, but Jesus hasn't said it yet until verse 15. So in verse 16, John's going to comment on it. It's as if John is the narrator of the movie and we were just watching the scene of Nicodemus talking to Jesus at night and kind of the cover of darkness and John just pauses the movie right there. And now he's going to talk over it as we're looking at the frozen scene of Nicodemus and Jesus. John's going to comment on it, talk over it, elaborate on it, pointing to this scene, Nicodemus and Jesus talking at night. This is how God loved the world. This is how. So in verse 16, John is going to take what Jesus said to Nicodemus and restate it, in verse 15, and restate it. So he says, for God so loved the world. Another way to translate this is, this is how God loved the world. And this way God has loved 
the world. Now, the reader knows that whatever follows in this verse is a direct product of the love of God. We got that, right? Whatever comes after this, for God to love the world, whatever that it is, is the direct product of God's love. What could possibly motivate, think about it like this, what could possibly motivate a father to give up his own son to death, gruesome, brutal death, who, to people who don't deserve it and hate him as the father? What could motivate a dad to do that? What could motivate a father to do that? Love is the only possible reason. He has nothing to gain by doing that. Love must be the reason. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then here's 1 John 4, 9, and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest. In this, we saw God's love that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The, the love is the motivating element. Now, Nicodemus is still in the kind of the conversation in the commentary right here. He's good and Jews, they're good with God loving the Jews, but that's not what John writes. What does he write? God so loved the world. He wrote the world. He doesn't love the, just the Jews. He loves the world. And that's not so, this is what uh, D.A. Carson said in his commentary. He said, that's not so amazing because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's what makes the love so confounding. It's interesting to me that John writes this book and he says, God so loved the world. God loved the world. But then he says in 1 John 2.15 that we as Christians should not love the world. God did, but we shouldn't because the world is so wicked. John says, don't love the world. God can, but you shouldn't. This is the first time in the Gospel of John, though, verse 16, that the word love appears. Now, in our English translations, the word shows up 57 times, around 57 times in the Gospel of John. And the Bible uses, I'm sure many of you know, different words for love. We translate three or four different words in Greek to mean the word love. Now, the word here is the Greek word agapao, or agape type love. It's love sourced in the giver, not in the receiver. It's just coming out of the one doing the loving. It's not because anything in the object of love is lovely in any way. God didn't love the world because it was lovely or lovable. He loved the world in its wretched state. When we were sinners, remember those verses we read? We're dead in our trespasses. We're sinners. Romans 5 goes on to say that we were hostile towards God. We hated God even. That's when he loved us. He, we had no affection for him whatsoever. And that's when he loved. God was not stirred to love the world because of the loveliness that it had and that he desired. God loved the world because he sovereignly determined to do so independently. God loves the world because of who he is. You know, in marriage, it kind of works one way initially and then it becomes another way. Initially, 
when we're getting married or we're dating our spouses, we love them because there's something in them that's lovable. There's something in them that you desire, their character traits, who they are, they're lovely to you. I loved and pursued Anna because she was the godliest woman that I'd ever seen. She was beautiful, she was fun, she was smart. She pursued me because I had flowing cinnamon hair and a tight athletic frame and jokes on her because all those traits fell off and got wide. But all her traits remained, so it worked out okay for me. But in marriage, what eventually happens? He snores, she spends too much money, he's lazy, she nags. Now you're choosing to love your spouse, not because they're remaining lovable, but because that's what you do. That's coming out of you. You're learning to love like God and not love like a child, basically. That's what God does. I love because that's who I am, not because it's what you have merited. That's how God loves the world, regardless of the level of loveliness. And he loved them to this extent, that he gave his only son. What's the result of God's love? It's one thing for God to have love, but what comes of it? The vicarious death of his son for sinners. That's what came of it. God didn't love the world. Uh, God did not love the world because Jesus came and died. Jesus came and died because God loved the world. See, in Scripture, God's love always does something. The idea, the concept of love being a feeling is a human-generated idea. It's a human concept. For God, love is a choice and an action over against being a feeling or emotion. God doesn't fall into love. God is love. God doesn't get overcome by love. He chooses to love. God's love is what motivated him to sacrifice himself to satisfy himself. That's what happened at the cross. We understand that, correct? Who had to be satisfied? The devil? No. God's holiness had to be satisfied, and his wrath against sin had to be satisfied. So he sacrificed himself to satisfy himself. That's what happened on the cross. God's love is action, and that action is the ultimate sacrifice for the most unworthy of recipients. Now, what we see here, now this is where we get into a little bit of our memory work in the King James or New King James or NASB. It has the word in there, only begotten son. Now, if you have any other translation like the NIV or the ESV, begotten's not in there. It just says only or, or one and only. Now, I think that what, the way that should be translated is that it should be translated only or one and only. That the word begotten can be misleading. That word that becomes begotten is monogenes which means only, unique, one of a kind. It comes from two different Greek words. Um, manaomai, which means to be left alone, and geneomai, which means to come into being or be born. Uh, but Jesus can't be born in a sense that he didn't exist and now he does exist. And the reason why I think those older translations have begotten because they were trying to make a distinction between the adopted sons and daughters and the non-adopted one son and that, so they put the word begotten, but one and only actually I think is more effective, and that's particularly because in our multicultural world, because if a Jehovah's Witness comes and sits down with you, or a Muslim comes and sits down with you and goes to John 3.16 and says, look, your Savior can't be God because it says right here, he was begotten. He became, and he wasn't before. So then what do we do when that happens? 
Jesus came into existence, he didn't exist before, then what makes him any more qualified to redeem humanity than any one of us? we got a problem there. Well, what we can do if that happens is all we have to do is go to John 1, 1 through 3, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was God. So we can do it from John itself. The apostle clearly believed him to be God. But Jesus also believed himself to be God. John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, one in essence. We are the same. Jesus believed himself to be God, and the Jews believed him to believe that he was God. So they're, they're clearly understanding he thinks he's God because of John 10, 31 and 33. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? What good deed are you stoning me for? And they say this. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. So clearly, they understood him to say he's saying that he is God. So what we need to observe in the span of these three verses, from verses 14, 15, and 16, really going up to 13, rather, 13 through 16, is that in the span of those few verses, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and the Son of God. So he's affirming, he's being affirmed by John the Apostle from his own mouth that I am fully, truly man and truly God in the span of these few verses. And if he's not both of them, then we are all doomed and we have no hope. He has to be both in order for us to be saved. So for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does that mean? It means that everyone is perishing. Everyone is not destined for eternal life. No human being has ever existed that wasn't destined for eternal destruction. We're all born on the train track that leads to eternal destruction. Yet everyone who believes is moved to a different train track going the other way that leads to eternal life, eternal blessedness, eternal peace. The phrase can literally be translated right here that in order that all the believers in him, that not a single person who believes in Jesus will even whiff eternal death won't even come with an eye shot of it. God gave up Jesus in order that everyone who believes, every single believer in him, will escape eternal judgment. Every single one. Now let me tell you this. Every biblically consistent Calvinist knows that the words whoever, the words all, mean exactly that. Whoever and all. So we preach to persuade people to believe in Christ because if they do, then they are saved. There is no one, there's not one single person who desperately wants to be saved, is banging on the doors of heaven. Let me in, I'm confessing your son as the one true son of God and I've repented of my sins. And then God says, no, you're not elect. That person does not exist. We have to confess that because it's absolutely true. All who believe, if you believe, then you are saved. If you are saved, then you are elect. We don't need to spin our wheels trying to figure out, am I elect or am I not? Am I elect or am I not? No. Do you want to be saved? Do you trust in Christ? Repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ, then you are saved. This verse means what it says. We can take that on face value. So we instead give all of our energy into calling people to believe in Jesus, affirming that if they do, and they will not perish, but they will have 
eternal life. So that's the whole verse walked through. Have you ever thought about the concept, though, of worldview? How we view the world? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that John 3.16 is the whole Bible in miniature. And I thought that was a, like a, a short way to say that. And that's true. The biblical worldview can be summed up in John 3.16. Now, worldview, lots of smarty pants, scholars and theologians, they say that worldview breaks down into four elements. That every worldview, every lens to work through the world, every ideology breaks down into four elements. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So there's four questions. How did we get here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? And how will it end up? Every worldview essentially boils down to that. Let me just give you an example. Communism breaks down like that. How do we get here? By Darwinian evolution. What went wrong? Well, the idea of private property and capital made classes of people and then the rich oppressed the poor. How do we fix it? We eliminate classes and we have no rich and no poor. Everybody has everything in common. How will it end up? It'll end up with a utopia on earth where everybody's equal and nothing is ever, there's no oppression and there's no oppressors. Now that's never actually played out for the communists, but that is their world, that, the worldview broken down. And the same thing happens for any worldview, the feminist worldview, the atheist worldview, any worldview, it breaks down into those things. We got here somehow, something went wrong, we're trying to fix it, and this is where we're going to end up because of that. Now, the, that's, that folds out in John 3.16 because God made it that way. How did we get here? Look at the first part of the verse. What does it say? How did we get here? For God so loved the world. How can you love the whole world unless you made the whole world? Who else has capacity to truly do that unless it's the creator? We got here because God made the world. What went wrong? Shall not perish. We're all perishing. We're all going to die. We're all going to die for eternity because we are all sinners who deserve that. Now, how do we fix it? That he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not perish. That's the redemption of it right there. And then how will it all end up? In eternal life. And life is not eternal merely in the length of it, but also in the experience of it. It's infinite in its experience not just in its length, and infinitely good as, long as, inf as well as infinitely long. That's how the Christian worldview breaks down. It just falls apart completely in John 3.16. This is why it just is such an impactful verse forever. Now, there's misconceptions of this verse, though. We see the beauty of it, but it gets used for things that it wasn't necessarily intended to be. And we've talked about this a bunch, a lot in John, and we will continue to do that because all of the incidents in here and the most quotable verses from the New Testament come from John. And familiarity can breed a little bit of misunderstanding. Let me just give you an example. What does the word subpar mean? If your boss comes and says, hey, your work was subpar this week, is that bad or good? It's bad, right? It's below the standard. But where does the term par come from? Golf. And don't you win if you are subpar? Isn't that the point? To be below par? Pars are bad. You want birdies. You want less than par. You want to be below par. So we're like, okay, that doesn't really make sense. Well, we're familiar with it. We kind of get it, but it doesn't line up. Let me give you another one. If somebody says, hey, I was hoping to talk to you mano a mano. Are you expecting a conversation man-to-man, -man, or are you expecting hand-to-hand -hand combat? 
because mano in Spanish means hand. And when we say mano a mano, hand to hand, that sounds like fighting, not like talking. But again, when we're familiar with things, they don't really make sense. We can believe things incorrectly about, about tropes we use often. And John 3.16 can fall in that category. Two common misperceptions, ways it's used, it was never meant to be, points it does not prove. Here's the first one. God's unconditional love. John 3.16 is pointed to for those who are talking about God's unconditional love. It's been lobbed into conversations that mean that God already loves you unconditionally. And now is that true? That God does love you unconditionally? Does this verse mean that God has unconditional love for sinners? Well, within this verse itself, there is at least one condition, right? If you believe, it's for those who believe. If you don't believe, then you remain on the conveyor belt that heading to eternal perishing. So there is at least one condition. But wow, what's the harm, though, in telling an unbeliever that God has unconditional love for them? Well, I think it helps for us to look at it from the perspective of an arrogant, uh, self-made unbeliever. Well, of course, of course God loves me. I'm awesome, as I am. Of course, the, the, the eternal deity, the creator of the universe, is literally dying to be friends with me because I've made myself into someone truly lovable. When you look at it from that perspective, it's dangerous. It's, it's like I'm holding all the cards in this deal. If it's unconditional, he loves me just as I am, and he's so desperate to have me. That seems to contradict John 3, 18, where John says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, now let's benefit of the doubt time, though. What do people mean when they say that? Unconditional love. When you tell your unbelieving family member, your unbelieving friend that God loves you unconditionally, what you mean is you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. And that is absolutely true. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't make ourselves desirable enough to God to where he goes, oh, I got to have that person. Look how great they are. Look how moral they are. Look how kind and giving and generous they are. We can't do that. So we're good and right to tell unbelievers and unbelieving family members and friends that you can't clean yourself up and you shouldn't try to clean yourself up. That's what we mean. Like we are wretched, hardened sinners from birth who despise God. However, when his love comes upon us in the new birth, we now believe in Christ. Now the righteousness of Christ clothes us. And in his eyes now, we are lovable. He loves us because we're in Christ and he's eternally loved his son from eternity past to eternity future. So we need to be careful how we present the gospel. We must present the gospel. But we have to do it in a way that we're diligent, in a biblical way, because God's love is conditional. But Jesus fulfilled all of those conditions. We say all the time, we're not saved by works, and that's true. But in another sense, we are saved by works. It's just not ours. None of our works. Christ did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So we have to say that you are dirty and unacceptable to God. And he cannot welcome you into his kingdom as you presently exist. But when you believe in Christ, the great exchange happens. You and all of your sin is put onto Christ, and him and all of his righteousness is put onto you. 
and now you are welcomed with open arms by that father that we see in Luke 15 running down the road to grab that prodigal son. And we must tell people that. So that's misperception number one. Misperception number two is God's universal love. What does John mean when he says God so loved the world? What does that mean? Does that mean that God loves dirt and biology and elephants and the water cycle and metamorphosis? Is that what he's talking about when he says world? Does that mean that God loves the sinful patterns of behavior of all of humanity, i.e. worldliness? Does God love that? Does that mean that God loves every single person that has ever walked on the planet in the exact same way? So when we stop to think about it, we need to define what John means by world. Because if we don't, we're in danger of misinterpreting this verse. Now let me, let me just bore you real quick with the kind of stuff that I read. There's this Greek dictionary that's about this thick, onion leaf paper, point one font. It's the small, and it costs $150 used. But you gotta have it, it's the only one that works, and so the word for world is cosmos, and that dictionary is called, everybody just calls it BDAG because there's five guys who worked on it, B-D-A-G, four guys, and they just list their names like that. We just call it BDAG. But Cosmos has seven definitions in that book. The first one is that which serves to beautify through decoration, adornment, or adorning. The second definition is condition of orderliness, an orderly arrangement, order. The third definition is the sum total of everything here and now, the world, the orderly universe. The fourth definition, a sum total of all beings above the level of animals, the world. Fifth definition, planet Earth as a place of inhabitation. Sixth definition, humanity in general. Seventh definition, the system of human existence in its many aspects, comma, the world. That's a bit overwhelming, isn't it? Seven definitions for one word? This just proves again that John is a book of of such depth that it can keep a theologian occupied his whole life, but a child can understand it. It really is a, a pool that a child can wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. That's what the Gospel of John is. So let's work through this on a real-life level. Because most of us are not going to be Greek scholars and you're not going to buy that $150 used massive book that you could build a house out of. It's a cinder block. But God's Word is knowable and not just knowable for the super smart. We believe that and we have to say that, that it is for all who can understand language. Whether or not they can even read, it can be read to them and they can understand it. We believe that and we affirm that about the Bible. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to wade together for just a minute into the deeper end of the pool. Now, if you start to get scared, don't cling to the person next to you because they'll drown too. (laughs) Grab the side of the wall or use your chair as a flotation device. But we're going into the deep end for just a minute. Let's use extreme examples just so it's so vivid. The colors are so vivid. Let's ask this question. Did God love Hitler the same way he loved Corey Ten Boom. If you don't know who Corey Ten Boom was, she was a Dutch woman who was a Christian who hid Jews in the Netherlands during World War II. And then she got taken to a concentration camp. Her family did too. Her sister died in a concentration camp. And then she saw the guy who killed her daughter, her, her sister, in the concentration camp after they got out, and she forgave that guy. Corrie Ten Boom is an unbelievable saint, and we should all learn from her. But let's look at the same people in the same time period. Did God love Hitler the same way he loved Corey? Let's, ask, let's ask the, answer the question like this. Some will say yes and some will say no. Let's say yes for now. Now, if that's true, then did God give Jesus for Hitler? 
Well, some will say yes and some will say no. Let's say yes for now and keep the story going. If God gave Jesus for Hitler, then Jesus died for Hitler. Is that true? Some would say yes and some would say no. Let's just say yes and keep this, the story moving on. Just to be clear, what does Jesus' death do? We're leaving Hitler here, that, that, that Jesus died for Hitler. What does Jesus' death do? Look at Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, meaning with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What did Jesus' death do? It made dead people alive, spiritually dead people alive. It forgave them of their trespasses. It canceled their sin debt. It nailed the mortgage papers of your debt on the cross. That's what Jesus' death did. Now, back to Hitler. Where is he now that he is dead? He is in hell. Unless he accepted Christ the moment before that suicide. Now, what is hell? Matthew 13 and Matthew 25 tell us. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says again in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If then, hell is where the evil go for eternity in fire to pay for the evil has done, that they have done, can anyone be there for whom Christ died? Can anyone be there? Remember, Christ's death accomplishes the cancellation of the sin debt and bestows the forgiveness of God onto that person. So if God loved Hitler and God gave his son for Hitler, thus his son died for Hitler, and yet Hitler is in hell, then wouldn't that mean that he's, his sins have been punished twice? Once when Jesus bore them on the cross, and then now again by Hitler in hell? He's, their sins are being paid for twice in that sentence. Wouldn't that make God maniacally cruel to punish Jesus, his own son, for sins that Hitler is paying for now? Why punish Jesus for sins that he was never... That, that, and doesn't that make Jesus' death weak and ineffectual? It doesn't actually accomplish anything. It, it was impotent to pay for Hitler's sins. And because it didn't work, Hitler's got to be paying for it now anyways? All right, now we're out of the deep end of the pool. Swim to the edge, take a breath, that part's over. But the point was to eliminate the perception that God's love goes to this everybody, every individual in the same way. Jesus did say that God does have a kind of love for everyone. Look at Matthew 5. It's called common grace. Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes, God makes his son, like the star in the sky, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So he's saying love like God does. God does have a degree of love for the evil and for the just. Like they, they both get the same rain, right? 
So what's the degree of love from God that wicked people, they have food, shelter, clothing, relationships, material comfort. But that doesn't grant, that's not the kind of love that grants anyone eternal life. When John 3.16 says God so loved the world, I'm convinced that the world that John's talking about there is the sixth definition we ran over. That humanity in general, mankind as a unit, from all time, all space. And mainly what convinces me of that is Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John. Look at some of these words that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. If you, disciples, were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Look at John 17, 9. This is Jesus praying to God the night before he is crucified. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. See Jesus say that? I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In John 17, 14 and 16, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus' use of the word world here is to indicate, or John's use rather, uh, is to indicate that Jesus' sacrifice is not exclusive. This is what he's explaining. It's not exclusive to one people in one place at one time. That, 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 that Jesus' love is only here for the people who are alive on earth and around to hear the story of what happened in Palestine in 33 AD. It's not for them only, but rather God insists that he will be saving and will save a people to himself from all over the globe and throughout all of history. That, that, that context of the world. God so loved mankind and its united corporate rebellion against him to give his own son to die for those who will believe in him. The whole world will be represented in God's kingdom, every tribe, tongue, nation, and time period. That's what John is saying. So here is how this, Jesus being given only being given by the Father for those who will believe, this is how it doesn't conflict with the love of God. Let me, let me just quote somebody smarter, more mature than me. John Piper says it like this. Let me pull, I pulled this quote out. I'm going to read it to you, and we'll walk through it. So he says, We see this again in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, a husband loves his wife in a way that is different from the way he loves other women. That's true, right? And we're the bride of Christ, and Christ is our husband. And Christ loves his bride, the church, in a way that is different from the way he loves other people. He gave himself up for her. Now listen to what John Piper says like this. He says, in my preaching, this has been one of the most effective ways to help my people feel the preciousness of definite atonement as an expression of God's distinguishing love for them. Here it is. What would it be like for a wife, I ask them, to think that her husband only loves her the way he loves all other women. What would that be like? Your husband only loves you in the exact way he loves all other women. That would be so disheartening. That would be deflating and demoralizing and demeaning. So she, that's what he says. He said it would be disheartening. He chose her. He wooed her. He took the initiative because he set his favor on her from all the others. He has a distinguishing love for her, a great love that is unique. She is his own loved treasure like no other woman. And so, 
God's elect are his own loved and blood-bought people as none others are. So while it's true that any Christian man should have a love for all other women, it's not the same as his love is for his wife. And we would call that very appropriate, wouldn't we? It would be very inappropriate to have the exact same love for all women that you have for your wife. And if we're the bride of Christ, then that just seems to follow, right? Seems to make sense. The same would be true of an adoptive parent. Before you could do anything, before you could dance and sing and show me your grades, I had chose you, I adopted you, I loved you. Before you were in any way lovable, that's when I set my love on you. That's different. That's unique. So here's our conclusion. Here's our implications of this verse. Two, evangelism and comfort. The first one is evangelism. Not only should we use this verse when we evangelize, it should motivate us to do this. Based on this verse, how much does God value souls? Just based on this verse alone. Enough to give his own son as the ransom payment for them. What are we giving? This is the question I ask myself. What am I giving to show the value that I place on human souls? What price am I paying to see sinners obtain eternal life? I mean, this, every time I sit and ponder this verse, I'm just convicted through the floorboards about my own evangelistic complacency. I mean, I want to be godly, right? I want to be like God. I want to be like Christ. Then why don't I love souls like he does? Why don't I care this much? like he does. Why am I so comfortable with the excuses that I come up with to not share the gospel? And I can come up with some whoppers of excuses. So this not only uh, is what we should be using in evangelism, John 3, 16, it motivates us that this, this is our heavenly father and the level of love that he showed to the utterly unlovable, then, then I must as well to some degree, which this is what makes me so excited about our opportunity over at Redbud Trail. Those are people we can evangelize to. We can't evangelize the whole world just as our own little church. We can have fingers and outreaches in different places, but those people, that's a real intangible thing. So I want to figure out how do we do that? How do I do that? Because of John 3.16. So evangelism, but also a little bit of, a, of conviction. But here's where I want to end on comfort, why John 3.16 should comfort us. If it's true, if it's true, like John 3.16 says, that in order for us to obtain eternal life, God gave his son. Won't he care for, take care of, and manage all of the other stuff in our lives? If he gave his son, Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he gave us his son, what else would he hold back that we really and truly need? I mean, think about it for yourself. If you're a parent, if you sacrificed to death your child for somebody else and then they asked you for to co-sign on their car loan, would you be like, no, that's too far? You already... Your child is already murdered for them. If they ask you, can, hey, can you, can you babysit my kids? 
hey, can you handle my, my house payment this month? He'd be like, yeah, of course. I've already given you everything. My own heart I've already given. So of course I would, I would give you this. So if God paid the unthinkable price to save our souls for eternity, I think we can trust him to handle our bills, our job, our cancer, our wayward children, our chronic pain, our internal turmoil, our difficult relationships. See, what John 3.16 should do to us is envelop us on all sides with unimaginable comfort in the coldest of winters and the darkest of storms. I think that's what we should pull from John 3.16. If he loved you then, he loves you now. If he provided payment for your eternity then, he can take care of and will to trust that he will take care of whatever your need is now. If he moved toward you to save you at the highest cost that any being could undertake, when you deserved it the least, then he will be and certainly must be with us now. His love for us is not based on us, but it's based on him. His love for us is sourced in his eternal character and not our inconsistent holiness. Here's a quote to end us with. Spurgeon said, The love of God is a wonderful thing, especially when we see it set on a lost, ruined, guilty world. What was there in the world that God should love it? There was nothing lovable in it. No fragrant flower grew in that arid desert. Enmity to him, hatred to his truth, disregard of his law, rebellion against his commandments, those were the thorns and briars that covered the wasteland. But no desirable thing blossomed there. Where did this love come from? Not from anything outside of God himself. God's love springs from himself. He loves because it is his nature to do so. And in that, we can take the utmost comfort because you and I move in and out of loveliness. You and I have expressed varying degrees of lovableness. And to, to God, that is irrelevant. Because his love for you doesn't source in you. It's sourced in him. And God cannot change. And God cannot sin. And God cannot waver. So we take John 3.16 for the utmost comfort that it offers us. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled sounds too weak and um, in awe sounds too trite. We're just, the wind is out of us and the, our minds are spinning over your, over your love and your commitment to love us. Uh, we talk about having skin in the game. You put your son in the game. and poured out to the dregs the full cup of your wrath on him. The beatings and the crucifixion and the whippings, the bleeding flesh, the exposed muscle, the, all of that was horrible that Jesus endured. But the worst part is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he endured that so that we would never even know that. We'll never even know comprehend that kind of pain and separation from you. That's how much you loved us. So we 
We ask your forgiveness for all the times we doubt that you'll take care of our needs, where I, where I doubt that you will take care of my own needs and my family's needs, because uh, that's so uh, dismissive of what you've already paid for us, paid for me. So, Father, let us rest in this comfort, not in guilt. You, you drive out guilt and you drive out fear. That's what perfect love does, Lord. We know it drives out fear and it, and it covers and, and it get rids, gets rid of the shame and the embarrassment so that we can come as children that you want and we're welcome at your table and that you, you keep putting leaves into your table as time goes on for all of the chairs that you're going to put around it for those that you have chosen to love before the foundations of the earth. And it will be more than we can calculate that when this very Apostle John saw a preview of that, their voices, all he could describe it was is this sounds like Niagara Falls. There's that many people. It's just a, a wall of noise coming in praise to you. We are so blessed to be a part of that, beyond blessed. We don't have enough descriptive words to say that. And Father, let that thankfulness and gratitude motivate us as we seek to go out to others. Lord, we can all think, and if we want to just lay guilt on ourselves, we can just talk about evangelism and evangelism failures and cowardice because we all have it. And you knew that we would have it, and you love us anyways. But let this motivate us afresh, not out of guilt, but out of thankfulness, out of gratitude, out of uh, mimicry of who you are. Just, we're just being like our dad. So encourage us and strengthen us in that. And let us bond together, bound together uh, to do that, to be a light in our community. And we pray that that would be true. Uh, if not at those apartments, then, then elsewhere, Lord. And of course, in our everyday lives as we are in stores and at work and at school and in the neighborhood and going to games and all those things. Let us be bold, joyfully, happy, bold people with the gospel. Not trembling cowards and not arrogant yellers, but bold, loving people because of the great love with which you have loved us, with which you loved the entirety of humanity throughout history. For all who believe, you grant eternal life. And it's in that we rest every day. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.